we're we're trying to maintain a clean rating. So if okay. you can, if you can help it, that would be nice. All right. Well, I I am naked. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> That's right, like okay. Avdi no, no, and his well, gold I mean, bikini. Obviously, I don't. You know, uh, you know, just kind of blurts it out. I can actually hear that you're naked on the podcast, so you might want to edit that. I can, I can <laughs> no. tell for your voice. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'll, I'll wipe off the Vaseline then. Hang on. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> everybody and welcome to the javascript jabber podcast this is episode five and this week on our panel we have aj o'neill hey guys we also have yehuda katz hey hey we have jameson dance my name is jameson dance and i have a problem oh <laughs> wrong podcast hi and we yeah. also we also have joaquin larson hey you and i'm charles maxwood from teachmetocode.com um I, real quick i've been accused of not letting people know that I have other podcasts, so I'm just going to tell you really quickly. Um, we also do rubyrogues.com. Uh, that's the Ruby Rogues podcast where we talk about Ruby. And rubyfreelancers.com where we talk about freelancing. So um, same format as this one. So anyway, this week we're going to be talking about objects in JavaScript, which is kind of a not as straightforward as you might think or want it to be. And... Uh, since I am not the expert here, I'm going to let somebody else uh, go ahead and jump in and, and start us out. Well, what do you want to know? <laughs> well, Everything. okay. So Give a seed question. <laughs> okay. So basically, I've been reading JavaScript, the good parts. And uh, so the first thing he talks about is, you know, your general object, which most people kind of equate to a, a, a dictionary or a hash. But it's not exactly the same thing. It's, it's actually uh, quite a bit different from that because... Uh, the uh, the attributes and stuff that are there are yeah you know, I mean you can have uh, attributes that are functions and attributes that are uh, data and stuff like that and then uh, you also can define function or define objects in a way with functions because functions are closures and so they capture the um, they capture the what am I trying to say the context of everything around them and right, so private you, variables yeah right so you can you can set them up to kind of remember certain things about certain things and so it's kind of confusing and then on top of that you you also get the prototype stuff and so you don't actually necessarily define a class but you kind of inherit the prototype of another object and so it it's all kind of confusing as to how it sticks together and so um i thought we could just get in and talk a little bit about how it all works and maybe we should just start in general with objects and prototypes and how that kind of works, and then we can move into some of the other stuff. Okay, so objects are hash maps, right? So they used to be hash maps. Now they're hash maps with a bunch of extra stuff as of ES5 and more stuff with ES6. But it's a good starting point for sure. Okay, so well, the basic premise of it is uh, as it is in Python and Ruby and uh, tons of languages. Associative arrays or hash maps or whatever you want to call it, and then they've got some additional features. But uh, you you can use the literal syntax to create an object, which is just two brackets. So var foo equals uh, opening, closing, curly brace, and then you've got yourself an object. Or you can do something fancier, like I, I've never actually called new object, but I, I think you can do that. Yeah. Um, and then you just throw <laughs> stuff into it. Um, Right, but new oh, object, you, you create a function around the object or something like so, that? Hey, so, so basically what's happening is when you use the new keyword on something, you're calling it on a function. That function serves as a constructor. Uh -huh. So um, I'll, I'll say it pretending you already know what a constructor is in another language. So when you say new some function, that function serves as a constructor. Uh, JavaScript internally makes an object, uh, basically an empty hash. And then it gives that object to the constructor. Then the constructor can do whatever it wants because this inside of that constructor is the object that was just created. And then you get back the object. So that's like that's basically what new is doing. New is very. I'm actually not someone who likes to. I know there's a group of JavaScript programmers who like to pretend that new it doesn't exist and was a mistake. But I I think it's cool. I like it. 
generally what I do is I create a function. Um, I, I've seen this this kind of pattern that I really like where people check to see if this is a new object and if it isn't then they recall the function with new so that if someone naively uses it the wrong way it still does the correct thing and another way is to append a method um, onto a let's call it a function class all functions can kind of be classes like we're saying here um, so say you do function foo then you can do uh, foo dot create equals another function return new foo and so I kind of like um, that pattern and one thing I want to point out with the new syntax is if you're not using ES5 or strict mode uh, which there, I, I can't see any reason why you wouldn't want to but uh, if, if, you, uh, if you if you want arguments dot quality then you might want to keep using old mode Say that again, Yehuda. I didn't uh, follow. If, if you want arguments.callE, that's a feature that isn't really fixed in ES in ES5. So it you base, might basically arguments is going to you know go away completely. Okay. So basically, if you're still stuck in a world where you have to support old and new APIs, and for some reason you need arguments.callE or arguments in general, you might be forced to stay out of strict mode, especially as strict mode becomes stricter. So and. And an uh, important point I think to note about that is that's going to be generally just the case of something like um, Firebug. Like your your average applications aren't going to use that and they're not going to need it. And when you use it writing your own new code, it's not going to affect you. It would be if you were to try to take a legacy code or try to take a, a large library that is, is debug driven, so a, a debugger library would be the kind of thing that uses that Kali, not normal uh, code. So old old Sprout Core, so not Ember, but old Sprout Core used arguments.callE to implement super. We don't do that anymore, but that's how it used to work. So there are definitely reasons why people would have wanted to use arguments.callE before that might still exist. Yeah, but there's definitely workarounds where you can just absolutely put it put a if if you think you need callE, usually what you can do is create a an object and then assign your function to a property of that object. That way, you have a reference to the name of the function Absolutely. when you need it later on. All right. So <clears throat> we talked about constructors, and and basically what Yehuda said was that it creates kind of an empty object and passes it to the constructor, and then the constructor does stuff on it, adding stuff to the prototype or adding attributes to it. Is that how that works? Uh, not to the prototype. So, so basically the way prototypes work is really straightforward. So when JavaScript goes to look up a property on an object, the first thing it does is it looks it up on the object. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's a secret pro property called uh, internally bracket bracket prototype, but uh, it's sometimes exposed as underscore underscore proto, proto underscore underscore. And that property is what JavaScript looks, uh, looks at next. So if you basically, if JavaScript fails to find a property on an object, it doesn't stop there. It goes and looks at the prototype of that object, and then it goes to looks at the prototype of that object, etc. And one of the things that happens when you make uh, use the new the new keyword is that the internal prototype of the object that you're creating is the functions dot prototype property. So okay. what basically that means is that if you have a prototype property on a function and you call new on that, after JavaScript finishes looking at the object that you just created for properties, it will go look at the function.prototype and then possibly that thing might have its own internal prototype. Okay, so that leads me to another question and that is um, if you change that function's prototype later on, is it is it referenced or is it copied? It's inter it's not copied. So you can uh, it's basically just internally it's a pointer to that object. So JavaScript is basically just walking the prototype chain looking for properties. So if you change any element of the prototype chain, it will find it just fine. Okay. Yeah. So and if you had... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say internally, there's obviously a lot of caching magic that JavaScript does to make things fast, but you don't have to worry about that. And, and that explains a little bit about why people get grumpy about changing object.prototype. <laughs> like, um, I mean, you can do it, and, and some people do. I think Ember does it, doesn't it? No, definitely not. Absolutely oh, not. Oh, it doesn't? Oh, Absolutely not. 
anyways, there are some, I can't remember what it is, but there's some prototype. commonly used libraries prototype that change object.prototype. And people get upset about that because it changes the prototype, the, which is like the final chain in the, in the prototype chain, the final link in the prototype chain for everything in your whole runtime. So, so that's, that's kind of why people don't like that. Exactly. Yeah, I, so I think there's, there's definitely there's a larger discussion that exists about overriding native prototypes. Um, so like, should you override array? Um, and then it, within that, there's the should you override um, array to polyfill old features? Like, should you add map if it doesn't exist in IE versus should you add totally new stuff? And then there's like, should you add stuff to object.prototype? Adding stuff to object.prototype is a disaster because a lot of developers try to iterate over objects without specifically limiting the iteration to the uh, properties that are in are just on that object. So if you just use a hash as like an options hash and you start iterating over it, you'll get you'll get the things that were an object that prototype. Right, and that problem applies to the four x in object approach, Correct. the object dot keys approach, which is available in everything from Internet Explorer nine and then browsers as well. Um, will will work just fine. Yeah, although object, so I don't know, I haven't done benchmarks, but I would imagine that object.keys would be slower because you have to iterate twice, but I don't know if that's true or not. Um, For each, yeah. is, well, it, we actually did recently on the on the Node.js mailing list, there was a, a bunch of um, <clears throat> benchmarks done on that. And in, and Firefox and Chrome have vastly different uh, results. For that, where uh, uh, Chrome has really good results for four each, while um, Firefox, I believe, uh, does keys really well. Hmm. Interesting. And and so the thing to keep in mind is never pre-optimize. You know, if you find that something's slow, fix it. But don't choose to use older methods that are less safe because you think that maybe it'll be faster or slower. I mean, I yeah, have had a case where changing a few things resulted in a difference between about three seconds to about 80 milliseconds. But I was iterating over, it, it was a very specific process involving converting a, a raw binary image that was custom char set, git request. I mean, it was a very edge case. Just short, uh, that's obviously different in like hot code in a framework. Yeah, I mean, you know, from my point of view, like about objects, I try, I try not to use them. You know, I mean, basically, I when whenever I have a lot of objects, I use an array and I use hashes and I just iterate over the hashes and then I have uh, uh, functions on top of that that kind of pull stuff out. And I, you know, I, I guess it's kind of like, you know, I, I, I kind of grew up or like I, I learned, you know, uh, you know, from education about uh, um, object-oriented programming, but it always seemed like something, uh, you know, that was for because your know, programming is hard. So they needed a one-to-one -one mapping between the real world and you know how you're gonna make programs and stuff like that. But I find that it's you know it, it you add all these layers to it for for no reason in many cases I find. Yeah, uh, and with the prototype, you don't want to have a whole lot of layers anyway because like Yehuda was saying, where you jump up the prototype chain, so it it does make sense to keep layers to a minimum. Right. I I guess I I come from the code sharing school of thought and. It's, it's useful to use uh, prototype chains to, to share code, just like it is in classical-oriented programs. But um, there's for sure another school of thought, which is like the Lisp school of thought, which is like make functions that operate on raw ashes. I don't know. I can't say I'm in that school of thought, but I know people who are. So, so, so my thing with that school of thought is you still want some way to combine those common common functions that, that operate on stuff, don't you? Because, I don't know, it just seems really messy if, you, if, you, if your unit of decomposition is just the function, then you have tons of functions scattered all over the place. Yeah, so you could obviously, so basically what it ends up happening is that you structure things in namespaces, but then I start to wonder if you are just rebuilding classes with extra ceremony. Yes, that's fair, you know, that's fair. I guess it depends if you're talking about if you're talking about frameworks or if you're talking about applications themselves, where you're not really kind of seeing these kind of third-party uh, sharing. But I will say that, like, for what we're talking about in terms of sharing, I think it's much more important to have events, like have a have a consistent and kind of like a, a, a an established event system rather than objects. You know, I 
like I'm, I'm seeing all this stuff in in uh, in, in years discussed about you know we need to have a object construct and stuff like that, and I'm kind of curious you know who cares if we can share objects from one place from one library to another if they don't you know talk the same way internally whereas with a, a consistent event system I think we could get a lot more done. What do you mean so, by event system? Uh, so so basically that you you the same as in Node.js that you you fire events and yeah, yeah. so event, listen to events. Right, right, exactly. But if you do that in the client, then you can have much wider kind of um, reuse and and um, incorporation between components. You mean as opposed to using callbacks all over the place, do events where it makes sense? Right. I mean, uh, it, well, it, to my mind, you know, events are kind of like callbacks. You know, in 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 a sense, you know, because you have a handler, but you just put the callback in that in the handler for that that listener. But I mean, in terms of instead of using uh, you know, this is my, my public function, and this is my uh, you, you know member function or uh, you know member method, uh, public method, and then you have to kind of call these you know by name. Whereas well, you can just emit events, and then whoever wants to grab them and listen to them can use them. Okay. Yeah. So I I'm actually a big proponent of events have been historically, um, and there's definitely a win when you have one to many events. I'm not I'm not sure why you're saying that that isn't already true about the browser. Environment though, uh, well, because I, I don't see it. I don't. I don't see many frameworks or many like you know. I don't see many um, shareable libraries or shareable uh, bits of code that are based around events. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think there's a reason for that though. I think so. There definitely are events, but it's definitely clunkier to be firing events as opposed to calling methods. I think there's a lot of libraries, Ember included, that uses events a lot internally after you trigger like you call methods um, so I don't I think there's more nuance going on in practice I for sure like the browser environment is heavily evented so anybody who writes like jQuery code almost all of that is going to be using events and jQuery itself exposes a custom event API that's pretty popular I think mm. for regular objects jQuery is supported um, has supported custom events on arbitrary objects since like one three maybe or earlier, right? Well, I'm just thinking, like in terms. I mean, uh, personally, I like to use use three, and it uses a lot of events as well. I'm just curious why ES Discuss is so kind of, you know, so focused on objects. You know, uh, so focused because, on we need an object constructor. Because ES Discuss is a is about the language, and events are basically a library, right? So there, maybe it makes sense for ES Discuss to like standardize events, but oh, definitely. Um, I, so I, that's fine. I'm I'm not against that. But I don't think it's fair to say that the environments that have JavaScript don't have events, right? They all do. They all have event systems. It would probably be nice if there was one of them that worked in Node in the browser. But I, I think that's sort of a, that's a library issue. Right, right. But I mean, you, you, then you could also say, well, you know, everyone has objects, right? So why do we need to standardize that? Well, well the, it's, not, it's not standardizing objects. To standardizing new syntax to make writing ob common object-oriented patterns more easy. So I, I think it's kind of the the thing with events is it wasn't standardized in language probably as well because back in the beginning it, we didn't use them so much and it wasn't we didn't realize the importance of it. Um, but it, well, I, in relation to what um, was said earlier, I I find that a lot of times where callbacks are the only pattern in a library for exchanging data, um, it, it becomes really cumbersome really quickly. And the using something like, a, for all my code, I include nodes event emitter that I've made like a two-line change to so it works in the browser. And um, I find that definitely helps me to organize the code a lot better uh, in general. All right. Well, I'm going to bring us back around to... Uh to objects and object creation, um, <laughs> I'm I'm a little bit curious. I've thanks, Chuck. <laughs> so, um, no problem. So, one thing that I've seen is that uh, it seems like a lot of people like the new function syntax, but then a lot of people are saying, "No, don't do that. Um, use this other uh, this other method where you basically create a function that creates a an object somehow." Or you know, creates another function that acts like an object or something like that. Um, you know, what is the other approach rather than using new? So there's basically three paradigms. Okay. There's new. There's literals, 
and then there's having a function that's called new foo or create foo. Uh-huh. Um, and the the advantages and disadvantages I see are that when you use just the prototype, um, you don't have as much privacy over the data. So everything that you modify has to be modified in this, and this whatever is on this is public. Um, and and one of the problems in the non-strict mode with that method is that this is implicitly global, so you can accidentally fudge up the global context, whereas in strict mode that will be null. Um, if you do the create method, you get data privacy because you can declare var and um, you know basically your your object is your closure, right? Uh-huh. And so whatever you return is what's public, but whatever you don't return just stays private in the closure, and you can have methods that modify things. Um, privately, but then that is going to take up more memory, and in in most cases, I think that's not a problem. Um, but there was one case where I um, had like ten thousand objects, and and it to to use it on a mobile device, it's more efficient to um, to use a prototype and have a function that gets an item out of an array or something. Um, and then the last type of just creating object literals. Um, that I don't really understand that method as well, but I've seen it used a lot in things like jQuery, where there's just this big, huge object literal, and and it always references this to get any functions or properties in that. Okay, so oh. I don't think that's a correct analysis of what's happening in jQuery. So jQuery for sure uses the prototype system. When you call the jQuery about method, chaining, when you call the jQuery method, it's basically this like the create approach. Right oh, internally, no. I, I meant the code of jQuery. Like when you look at jQuery's code itself, it's got like this huge object literal with like every function that's in well, jQuery defined in it. Those those that object literal is defining a prototype. Okay, yeah, I didn't realize that. So there's like a jQuery dot fn dot init, which is like a constructor, and that thing has a prototype on it, which is what all everything is defining and what happens. When, and that alias to jQuery dot fn. Um, jQuery.fn.init.prototype is alias to jQuery.fn. So every time you do like jQuery.fn.blah, you're basically extending the prototype of things that the jQuery function creates. Oh, interesting. Which is why you can add plugins so easily, cause it's basically using the prototype system. Huh. <clears throat> so um, when you use the the function new x um, principle, I'm I'm a little bit curious as to uh, uh, how the the private data works. Now it's all it's all saved in the closure, right? So, so what exactly? In the constructor. Okay. It, so, so when, sorry, go. Uh, I was just going to say, so if your constructor is a function, then inside that function, you just define variables and functions and stuff. Um, and, and, and those become private data, right? And then you can return just an object literal with um. Well, you wouldn't return if you're attributes, using right? Sorry, what was that? If you're using new, then you you can't return anything. The only thing you can return is undefined. Otherwise, I mean, it breaks. I think it's worth noting that there's, of course, a hybrid approach where you, most of your stuff is on a prototype, but you want some private data that is passing to the constructor, and and you add a few methods on the new object. Mm -hmm. um, I I personally really like the prototype approach because it makes it easy for modifications to be made if necessary. I think I think there's the people who like the constructor approach have an over obsession with privacy. I mean, I I'm a I like privacy as much as the next person. I'm a Ruby person. I use the private feature in Ruby, but um, I like the fact that in Ruby, private is like advisory. You can be like, actually, I don't like you. I'm going to change change your mind about privacy. In JavaScript, if someone decides to make something private by making it a closure, it's like actually private, sealed, and. I, I again I think people who like that have an over obsession with privacy. I think it would be it would be superior to just make things public and then just let people make some convention that makes it hard to make mistakes. But let people and, do things if they need to. Okay. I think you're right in a lot of cases too, because your module that you're using that's gonna have its prototypes in it is probably enclosed in a function anyway, so it's not like another um, API that's being included on the page is going to be able to reach into that closure of your of your module. As exactly. A whole. So like, so one thing that we do with Ember like all the time is uh, every single file is by the build system wrapped in a closure. 
So what that means is that we can like use local variables there that are used inside of the prototypes at will. So we'll like, here's a constant we would like to use over and over again. Here's a function that we would like to use. And those aren't like on an object anywhere. They're just hanging out in that file. But because the file gets wrapped in a closure, we can do that. Right. And that's, that's common with, I think, every build system that exactly. I've seen. Correct. So basically, if your files are getting wrapped in a closure, you have automatic scratch space to do whatever you want. You can't do per object private stuff. But again, I, I, I've had enough trouble with trying to deal with people who have made things per object private stuff where I was like, actually, I would like to change that because I need to get something done. And that's just my, my aesthetic is that if somebody that I don't think that I'm that when I make a library, I'm perfect. I think I sometimes make mistakes like the fact that in Java, some things are final and it's like, sorry, it's final. You can't ever change it. Like maybe those things are mistakes and you now you're stuck. Yeah. Right. And I haven't worried too much about it myself, the, the privacy, but I do realize that, you know, you've got a Facebook thing on the page, you've got a Twitter thing, you've got ads on the page. And so if you do expose something that gets into the global scope, everything's got free reign to modify the prototype of it or whatever it will. Yeah. I, th I think part of the difference too is kind of like aesthetics, right? Sometimes, to me at least, sometimes it just feels weird that I'm defining this object and all of its properties are kind of defined outside of it. I don't know. Maybe that's just something I need to get over. But like, it, yeah, it just seems like it's not. It, it well, just feels weird to not have it all self-contained. You know. That's the reason for the class syntax, right? For the the ES discuss class syntax is specifically to make an, a syntax that shows that that's what's happening. Yeah. Right. And I, I I think that's good. I so I just to like sort of go back to something that we said earlier. I I actually think it is very important for ECMAS, for the TC39 to wield syntax. And for that to be the main thing that they do, because every everything else could be done without TC39's approval, right? JavaScript community has done stuff. Node adds things. DOM people add things. Browsers add things. But syntax is not something that anybody can add without approval. Mm -hmm. So I think to the extent that, that there are problems like like what you just said, hey, it's really hard to do prototypes. Like it's really it's aesthetically weird to do prototypes because now you can't see that this is part of one thing, and people are doing this thing all the time, and everyone. Obviously, syntax needs to be real carefully because it's forever, but I think that is a good thing for them to be working on. Yeah. So really quickly, when we're talking about private data, um, it's it's always contained within the closure and not necessarily within the, the object that's being returned, right? I'm sorry. Can you repeat the question? So so basically, um, when when you have some object with quote, with, quote, private data, Basically, um, that's all within a closure that's connected somehow to the to the object, right? It's so it's exactly the same as in jQuery. If you have like a click handler and you have some data in the closure that you only have access to in the click handler, mm -hmm. right? So basically, if you have something in the constructor and then you expose a public thing on that object that has access to that internal data, obviously that's the only way to get access to the internal data because it's hidden from the world in the closure, right? So um, when you when you have some constructor function that that creates um, creates an object with um, with this kind of um, private data, then um, how do you how do you set it up so that you know that kind of gets carried along with it? Do you return an object with functions that uh, that reference that data, or so uh, like the canonical example to this would be let's say you have an object that is a incrementer and um, you don't want to expose the the number for some reason. Mm -hmm. Like you only want to expose the ability to increment it. Right. So what you do is you inside of the constructor you say like var i equals zero, and then you say this dot incur equals function i plus plus. Right. So ima and imagine that there's another function that like uses the i to do something else. And then you could say like this dot some other function equals function like print i. Right? So you don't want to expose people's ability to modify I directly. So this, this would be an example of a case where you want, I to be, you want I to be available for some reason, but you don't want, I, you don't want someone going in and saying foo.i equals 12. Right. right. So you say var i equals zero, you provide a way to modify I in a sanctioned way, then you probably provide another thing that exposes I in a way that you find important, and now you have a private I. Right, so you have a private eye. I no like pun that. intended. So, um, <laughs> right, where you can inspect. Anyway, um, 
So then I guess the, the I variable is then stored in the closure for each of those functions? Exactly. So every one of them would get its own I. The, so the prototype way of doing it would, that, would be that you would say, hey, uh, the thing that prototype constructor dot prototype equals brackets i zero right, and which would also give every single one its own i, but now every object has i exposed as a property on it, right. and you would say this dot i everywhere, right, mm -hmm. and that that means that you're allowing people to modify it, and like sort of the the compromise hybrid way is that you do something like underscore i, which says like this is public in case I have screwed up and it's important for you to modify it, but hey, if you do that, you're messing with something that I'm asserting as private. And is that a common convention, or is that just something that you generally do? I think it's common. AJ, is that? Do you think that's common? Oh, I'm sorry. What was that? Uh, using the underscore as like a indication that something is kind of private. Like, please don't mess with this unless you. Oh have. yeah, I've, I've, I've been told I've that before. Definitely seen that a lot. Um, I know JS Lint complains about it. <laughs> really. It it he does it doesn't like you to have uh, underscores, which I that's one thing I don't like about the JS Lint because I think that the underscore is a pretty good indicator. It's based uh, so like in Ruby we have a private signifier which basically says like if you call this method there will be a, a warning right and underscore essentially has the same and I think Python does the same thing. There's like the underscore is a notion of like the person is telling you that if you call this think about it before you do that because if you do it you're probably you're violating the expectation of the library right i think that's fine i think i think expressing the expectation of the library is is the most important thing and then if someone goes in and reads all your code and says i know that i can monkey patch this thing and it will be fine then it's then it, then that's okay i'm okay with people doing that although they are taking the risk in their own hands at that point yeah yeah i think that's a good a good pattern to apply when you're when you want to have the prototypes and allow people to have the public access to it but then it's very clear that this should have been private if it had been in a closure, for example. Yeah, someone told me that they like recently came over to me and told me that they overrode the destroy method to not do anything in Ember, like for a subclass of Ember. And I was like, essentially felt the same way. I was like, fine, like if you feel like that's fine. But just FYI, I did not reason about that case at all. So if you do that, you're essentially things may break be, that I didn't think about. And I think that's basically underscore, right? Underscore is, I have not thought about what happens if this is something different. But if you want to take that risk, seems good. All right, cool. So one other thing that I want to uh, point out, because this is kind of a, a basic uh, concept to JavaScript. Um, really quickly, can I get one of you guys to define a closure? Uh, so, I can, uh, go, go ahead, Yoda. Uh, so a closure is basically a... Uh, you could think of it as an object which has all the current local variables in them as slots, and that object is stored off. And whenever, uh, whenever any uh, function inside of that same scope gets called, that although that object gets reanimated. So uh, basically, all the local variables are stored off somewhere. So whenever the callback gets called, those local variables are returned from deep freeze and made available to that function. Right. AJ probably has a better explanation. So it's basically I, context. So you you have the context of, of when the function was defined. I, I, how do you how do you explain that? Like you know, I don't, what what do people you know how do, how do people I, want to have it? But it's, well, that's basically I, how I, I understand it. it. Like yeah. this, um, if you think of a of a of another language where there's there are global variables, and then there are, are local variables, and inside of a function, if you modify the global variable. When you call that function the next time, the global variable is still modified. So local function or local variables are exist for the, the duration of the function, but the global variables persist forever, right? Makes sense? Uh-huh. So then um, take that a step further where you can have nested scopes. So it's kind of like every time you have uh, a new function that you've created, any variable inside of that function is is global to anything below it. So anything that you visually can look at it and see that here's a function and another nested function and another nested function and another nested function, if a variable is declared at the top scope, it's, it's quasi-global for everything below, and that's what we mean by closure. Additionally, closures extend through time. So if you have a callback, even though one function has um, returned, um, that callback function may have, well, will have uh, 
access to all the data that existed at the time the first highest level function was called. So it's kind of like a quantum superposition of all variables that were, you know, in that, in that scope. Oh yeah, everybody, everybody understands quantum <laughs> superposition. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that, that's probably yeah, an elegant way of it. Does does that give you a quantum I, I of solace? I think think about that for like half an hour, and then maybe that will make sense to me. Yeah, I think what AJ just said is the most important thing, which is that the uh, the variables are don't are always available to every invocation of any callback. So if you have uh, let's go back to i. If you have an i that you define i equals zero inside a function, and then there's a callback inside of there that gets called over and over again, like a click handler, it's always referring to that same i. It's not referring to, it doesn't get a new copy every time, or it doesn't become null or undefined. It's always referring to whatever it was uh, when you started, and then any modifications also affect future things that look at it. And on that note, so JavaScript doesn't have threads, but it does have callbacks. And so you run into the same shared memory problems, more or less, that you would with, sh with threads, with callbacks and closure. Thank you so much for saying that. So I, I think, I don't know if this is a thing that people still say, but back when Node was just getting popular, a lot of people were like, because of evented, that means that there are no shared memory problems, no mutexes, evented is awesome. And I, like my initial reaction was, I've been doing JavaScript for a while, and closures actually make the problem worse. Right, because there's so basically when you have closures, you have a ton of shared state, and there is total there's no reason reasoning about it. So any callback that gets called can modify any st state that's upstream of it. And if you end up with a lot of nested callbacks, you end up with a lot of callbacks that are modifying the same shared state. That Which, doesn't mean it's right. that doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it doesn't actually solve the mutex problem. But but that's why I say always put your functions in the highest scope possible. If you've got a function that's reusable. Don't put it down in a nested scope where it's seven functions in because you will have that problem much more exactly. often. And I try to make a habit of, of not using anonymous functions. I, not, I don't entirely avoid them, but I, I take a good hard look every time I think about using anonymous functions as to whether or not that's really a good practice. Yeah, I agree. I think um, in Ember, we almost always encourage people to use uh, methods on classes for callbacks, and that's a, one of the big reasons for it, is that methods on classes are don't actually accidentally enclose some scope that's going to be changed, where anonymous functions, just because, especially when you get deep into multiple anonymous functions, it's easy to forget. You get these like very, very big scopes, like we were saying before, entire files are scopes, right? You get these very, very big scopes, and then you can lose track. You have a common word that you use by accident. JSLint is good for this, but it's definitely, it, there's definitely a problem of events can happen at any time, and they can be take quote-unquote global scope. Yeah, and so one of the things I've found is there's a couple patterns that help reduce that being um, the kind of the waterfall pattern where when one function ends, you call the next and then you call the next so you can keep them in a straight line you know if you're looking in your editor all your functions are pretty much on the same indentation level but they they call each other um, when they're done or you can use some sort of um, uh, futures type library where it allows you to do sequential function addition or or to join functions together or something like that yeah all, all our events have a target action semantic Right, so I think most events are basically like give me a function, and if you want to do something, you want to bind it, you use function .bind. In Ember, all the functions have a are all the events are basically target action to make it really easy to do this pattern. Right, so if you want to say like, I the callback is call this comma this dot blah, and it will always be good. It's sort of like the equivalent of the the binding parameter to all iterate iterators, but for events. Right. So one other thing that I, I want to uh, dig into a little bit is that every, I don't, I don't know if I want to call them primitive type, but every native type has a prototype. Yep. Um, are there any implications to that that people should be aware of other than don't modify them unless you absolutely have to? Um, I would like to bring up one that's very important, uh -huh. which is there's no such thing as arrays in JavaScript. Um, there's an array syntax, which will create an object that inherits a particular prototype, 
But um, don't go thinking that if you if you put stuff in arrays, it's going to be more efficient because all it's doing is turning uh, zero into a string and then looking it up in the hash table and then returning so the newer, object to that position. Newer JavaScript engines absolutely do smarter things for arrays. Are you, uh, so they optimize it somehow? Abs so newer JavaScript engines, abs so they're not allowed to let you in on this secret, right? But new, but like V8, for instance, absolutely, if it sees an array and it sees that you're not like doing dot .a equals blah, and maybe even if you are, um, goes and puts it in an array and does lookups. I, the bigger consequence of that, which is totally visible, is that in JavaScript, every key is actually, oh, can only be a string. So object keys can only be a string, which means that in an array, the fact that you're looking something up by index zero is actually looking it up by index string zero now again, there's internal optimizations to make this fast if you don't happen to use crazy features. But if you go and make an array and look it up by object string zero, you will get back the first element. Huh. So basically, this, what's happening is that, semantically what's happening is that the zero gets coerced into a string because when you look up a property on any object by anything, so you can like do, you can make a, an object which has like object, object, bracket, object, object, close bracket as a, as a key, and then do look something up up by any object inside of there and it will give you back that value because basically the semantics are whatever you put into the lookup gets coerced into a string and then that's what is looked up by and that that semantic is very important for object, for arrays so you can't for instance have use an array and then be like I'm gonna stash some extra properties on this and use a string version of a number because that's basically gonna be the same thing as the as the number itself semantically it's exactly the same alright cool and uh, my my understanding is also if you if you uh, try and store something in like spot 1000 and you only have 10 things in the array, does it, doesn't it fill out the array all the way out to 1000 or whatever? No. So it, when you sorry. stringify. Uh, so it, it conceptually there, it is, there is a length of a thousand and there's a lot of undefines in there, but I don't, I don't think modern JavaScript engines are actually putting those undefines in the slot. Right. And even in the old ones, they're not really putting it in there. It's it's really treated as an object. Right. It just has different prototypes. Like the for each on an array um, is is the same as calling object.keys on the array and then filtering out the length property or any other properties you might have added on or any okay. non-numeric properties. All right. Yeah, Sounds I, good. I, I, just to be clear, like what I just said about optimization is purely an internal optimization hack. And AJ is right that from a semantic perspective – it's exactly identical to it as though it was an object. And, and if, they ever let, if they ever let the lie loose and show you that it's, that it's an array, they're doing it wrong. So you and, can assume that that's true. And I personally have not seen arrays any faster than objects because I did some naive things um, like a year ago where I was like, oh, it's an array, therefore it's faster. And, and, I, and I, I did things a little bit wonky because I thought, well, if I can get these objects to iterate quicker or something. Well, I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but then it turned out I was just wasting my time. Right. All right. Well, at, the, at this point, we need to get to the picks. We have two people that have kind of a hard stop in about eight minutes. So uh, this has been really, it's clarified quite a few things for me, and uh, hopefully it'll clarify some things for our newer JavaScript people. So let's do the picks, and we'll start with Yehuda. Uh, I just have one this week, and it's not technical. Um, the show Once Upon a Time is really good. Um, it's in the fantasy genre, but probably more the fairy tale genre. And uh, I think it's the story is innovative, and I've been enjoying watching. It's the first time in a long time that I've been like, "Oh, it is Monday. I should check to see if there's a new episode of Once Upon a Time." I haven't really for the last like multiple years. I've just been like, "Oh, I guess I watch this show every like couple of months. I'll see if there's new episodes." <laughs> so. I think it. I think people who watched Lost felt the same way. But anyway. yeah, yeah, it's written by the same writers who wrote Lost, and yeah, I, uh, my wife and I have really been enjoying it. So yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yep. All right, Jameson, what are your picks? Mine's like a story time one too. So there's a podcast called Pseudopod. Um, it's a it's like a horror kind of fantasy podcast. I guess more horror than fantasy, and um, it comes out every every week or every couple of weeks and they just have uh, really good stories that are narrated by uh, great narrators. So they have a couple hundred of them in their backlog. There's, there's also ones for science fiction and fantasy too. I think Escape Pod is the sci-fi one. I don't remember the fantasy one. 
But I've been listening to a lot of Pseudopod while I work out. That's my only one. I guess my other one is my nose. I pick my nose. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> That's right. a big doesn't. <laughs> exactly. Um, Joaquin, what are your picks? Well, I'm going to be a little bit boring. Uh, I'm going to pick uh, eloquentjavascript.net. And it's basically an online tutorial, a uh, uh, modern introduction to programming in JavaScript. And it's, uh, it's a great read. And, um, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's good. And uh, one more. I'm going to take uh, jsfiddle.net, which is, uh, you know, a good thing to, to work with if you guys have problems, uh, the, the listeners. You guys want to work with the arrays and objects, you can do it on jsfiddle. And, yeah. Yeah, totally. jsfiddle is, like, life-changing for me. All right, cool. It's great for if you're talking on IRC too and someone has a problem and they're like just trying to explain it in words. If you can just get them or you yourself, just make a JS fiddle. It's a lot easier yeah. to help other people and explain concepts. Yeah. We I make mean, it part of the paste process for submitting. What was that? We paste it. Go ahead, Yehuda. Was, we, it's basically part of the process for submitting bugs for Ember. It's like if you have a bug, please make a JS fiddle and show us the bug. It's like so much better than That's cool. what it used to look like. So what, what exactly is it then? Uh, it basically lets you put HTML, CSS, and JavaScript uh, into into a window, and then it shows you the output. So you can be like, "Here's the HTML, and JavaScript, and here's some libraries." And look, it's broken. Ah, uh, okay, cool. <clears throat> um, who who have we not hit yet? AJ, what are your picks? Um, so one is Carabas, um, Italian restaurant. They have a pasta that's about three quarters down on the right side of the menu. <laughs> that uh, it, it's, it's got real olives in it. Like they're called black olives, but they're not the American black olives. They're real olives with flavor and like artichoke and stuff. I, I can't Can remember you put what them it's on called. your fingers? But uh, yeah, sure, if you want to. Then they're um, real olives. And, and it, uh, yeah, so it's just like the best pasta I've ever had. And it was only like 12 bucks if you don't get it with chicken or shrimp. Um, so that, that's definitely one pick. And another is I, I found out recently about this program called Requiem, and I guess it's kind of black market. I don't know if I'm even allowed to, to, to talk about that kind of thing or if the MPAA will come get me. But um, so I, I like to buy my music and my movies, but one thing that is, has caused me to pirate them more often is when um, I can only get a version that's DRM, and then of course I won't be able to use it on, on my devices. Um, but I, I recently found out about Requiem, which is a, a decrypting tool for iTunes. So if you've legally purchased it, it will allow you to decrypt it. If you're trying to, to like take somebody else's uh, movie file and decrypt it, it won't work. But um, so now I'm I'm legally purchasing my movies through iTunes because I have a way to get them DRM free and high quality. Nice. All right. So um, I'm gonna try and condense this down as much as I can. But I get a lot of requests from people to uh, know what my podcasting setup is. <clears throat> And so I'm going to run through about five or six things really fast uh, and tell you what I've got. And then I might make some other suggestions about some things that you can get if you're not up for spending this amount of money. So the first thing that I have, uh, my microphone is a PR40. Um, it's a Heil PR40. And uh, it's it's a super nice microphone. Um, I think the retail on it's like $400. Um, but I think you can get it on Amazon for quite a bit less. Um and uh, it, it's really nice. It's the microphone that uh, Leo Laporte uses. And uh, anyway, it, I, I like the way it makes my voice sound. And it tends to um, kill a lot of the, the background noise that, that's out there. Um, so then th that goes into my mixer. My mixer is a Behringer Zenix 802. And uh, I, like I said, I'll have uh, links in the show notes to where you can get all this stuff. Um, but basically that's an eight channel mixer works really well. And, uh, you know, it, it has everything you need unless you need more inputs than that. But I'm only using three or four of the channels here. So, uh, <clears throat> that that's doing that. And then, um, to bring the computer stuff in, I'm actually using an iMic, which is a USB. It's really inexpensive USB sound card. And, uh, uh, anyway, the only other things that I use, I have an Ederol uh, R-09HR, which they don't make anymore. The new model is the Roland R-05, and um, it's a digital audio recorder, 
It has microphones on the top, so if you want to just like take it for a walk and talk into it, you can do that. Um, but you know, it, it's a pretty versatile little thing, and it uh, it uh, collects all of this uh, the sound. It you can record in Wave, which is what I do, so it's totally lossless. And then um, I condense it down uh, with with a compressor in Adobe Audition, and so that's my final pick is Adobe Audition. Now, um, if you don't want to spend as much. Um, I think Yehuda is using the microphone that I recommend if you're getting a, a USB, and that is the the Blue Snowball mic. I hear it's not working too well though. So. Well, it's the the Heil PR40 is a dynamic mic, which means that you pretty much have to be right on top of it in order for it to pick you up. Um, the Blue Snowball is actually a condenser mic, and so it'll pick up more of the ambient noise. Um, but if you want a rather inexpensive um, a relatively inexpensive uh, USB mic than that one I hear works really well and you actually sound pretty good on it cool. um, so the other um, if you want a, a dynamic mic like the Heil PR40 and don't want to spring for the bucks you can get a Shure SM58 and uh, that's about uh, 99 bucks and uh, it's it's an XLR mic so it doesn't plug into the the USB port but you can get a USB XLR converter and plug it into your computer anyway. Um, so that's that's pretty much it. That that's what I use. And uh, you know, hopefully, if you're looking at starting a podcast and you want to spring for that stuff, then then you can go ahead and get some of that stuff. So, and maybe for the links, we can just have a couple of different links to Amazon or whatever with these different mics. Yeah, I'll have it all in the show notes. So uh, you know, you can you can look at them and see which one you want to get. Um, but anyway, that's all I've got here. Um, one other thing that I want to point out. Um, I have moved all of my user voice um, forums, which is where we take our suggestions, uh, over under uh, one account. So rather than going to jsjabber.uservoice.com, if you come to the website and you click on pick a topic, it'll open up um, a dialogue where you can suggest ideas of things you want us to talk about. It'll also take you to the website if you want to where you can vote up ideas that you want to hear and um, that should really that should really help us uh, kind of get an idea of what you want to hear about um, other than that we are in uh, iTunes uh, we got a lot of traffic um, from our last episode and that got us into the new and noteworthy under uh, technology in iTunes which is actually really hard to do so uh, I really appreciate all of the people who were talking about it and if you have any feedback for us then we definitely want to hear it do you want to mention what we're doing next week, Chuck? Or is that not nailed down yet? Uh, I don't know. Is it nailed down, Yehuda? I don't know. Didn't. Uh, um, I am in the process. I think. I hope that we get Paul Irish on next week. Okay. I so, think uh, he has said yes, and I'm just working on nailing down the exact timing. Okay. So we are talking to Paul Irish about uh, coming onto the show, and uh, hopefully we will either have him next week or we will know more next week. So yeah, I'm hoping that we get to talk to him about the Chrome developer tools because I think that those things are vastly underutilized. Often people come and watch me on my daily workflow and they're like, oh my God, I didn't know all these things. And he knows way more things than me. So yeah, seems I, cool. I would love to get into that because I use them and I know I don't know enough about how to how, what's there. So yep. All right. Sweet. All right. Cool. So we will catch you all next week and thank you for listening.